How do you know the byword is run by a couple of teachers? Because even in the hot heat of summer, we give each other homework. We'll be looking at Guardians of the Galaxy by Al Ewing and the legendary all-star Superman. The byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave, here with my buddy Chris, and we're excited you have decided to join us for episode 106 of the Byword. In today's Byword Big Talk, we have once again assigned each other homework. Um, Chris has assigned Guardians of the Galaxy by Al Ewing, uh, and I have assigned to him uh, Grant Morrison's and... Uh, Frank Quietly's All-Star Superman. But before we get into the big talk for this week, there is always first some... News. Now, Chris, bring on the news. What's up? Okay, so usually I have a lovingly scripted segment here, but I'm just going to geek out at this moment. Uh, during uh, Summer Game Fest this past week, uh, the folks at Tribute Games and Dotemu revealed that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, which is which we've been waiting for uh, and have yet to have a release date, is releasing uh, this week upcoming on June the 16th. It's going to release on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, and uh, PC, and it will be backwards compatible to the next-gen consoles of a PS5 and Xbox Series X and S, and Here's more music to our ears. It will be available via Game Pass. It is the spiritual successor, in theory, to the popular arcade games of the 80s and 90s, uh, featuring the Turtles. Uh, that side-scrolling, beat-em-up style game, you can play as all four of the Turtles, uh, Splinter, April O'Neil, and revealed also last week the final playable character, Casey Jones. So... Dave, the last bit that uh, I'm holding out here is going to make you oh so happy. You can play multiplayer, both online and local. So I am I know what I'm doing all of next week. I don't know about you guys, but cowabunga, my friends. I'll just grab that bull by the horns and say local multiplayer is absolutely great news. Talk about a throwback considering how few games are still bringing the local multiplayer unless you are hanging out in the house that Nintendo built. Um, so th that's incredibly exciting. I'm a huge fan of those old Turtle games. Even, you know, some of the less popular ones, um, the Game Boy Follow the Foot Clan game, I was a huge fan of, even though it's like super easy, I would just like played constantly big big fan of those old, old turtle games so i'm very very excited to see shredder's revenge being on game pass day one man i cannot wait to play this this is going to be this is going to be a topic of discussion amongst the two of us i believe yeah for sure um now sticking in the land of gaming or is it the show now but uh another popular franchise is back in the headlines again yeah, I, and see, there there are no easy answers here, as is often the case with the news stories I like to discuss. Um, so, The Last of Us, uh, you know, is is sort of a, a big deal franchise these days. Um, 
uh, on the on the part of Sony. It's one of those big uh, Sony exclusives developed by Naughty Dog, which is you know an absolutely fantastic. Uh, developer that just happens to work exclusively with Sony. And I think maybe like a couple of years ago, like Sony even bought Naughty Dog outright or something. Anyways, <clears throat> so the Last of Us franchise has had a couple of different games. Um, the first one came out in 2013 um, for um, PlayStation 3. Uh, then there was a remastered version released, uh, I believe in 2014 for PlayStation 4. Um, and now... Uh, n- not that much later, let's be honest. Uh, we are getting uh, a remake, a full-on remake of The Last of Us. And, and this is where things get interesting. Um, because there's a lot of discussion about uh, not just um, whether this remake in particular was was justified or not. Whether the visual upgrade is significant enough to justify a remake. But also whether enough time has passed for a uh, remake to be even relevant at this point. Um, there's a lot of discussion going on um, among video game fans about this. Um, there's also um, the the problem of the, and how this is being um, advertised price wise, uh, with the base game being yes seventy dollars. So uh, you know once again we're going full price on a re release essentially. And although they're doing a lot of from the ground. Up work on this game um you know when you have editions ranging from 70 to 100 dollars for a game that has already been released twice previously on two previous generations at this point both on the ps3 and ps4 you start kind of wondering a little bit what's going on the part that i want to home in on in particular though is um, is the graphics. <clears throat> I've spent a lot of time looking at uh, comparison screenshots uh, between The Last of Us Remastered for PS4 uh, and The Last of Us Part 1 as they're billing it for PS5. Um, and looking at those comparison shots, uh, some things come to mind. I think it's very important, first of all, to note that The Last of Us, even on PS3, was like the best looking game. Like if, as far as like graphical fidelity on the PlayStation 3, The Last of Us basically, it just kind of took like every last drop of graphical fidelity out of that machine. And then, you know, you look at the the remaster on PS4 and that's even, even that's an upgrade, a tremendous upgrade even. Um, so then you look at the PS5 edition and the first thing that jumps out is you said the environment do, uh, environments do look slightly better uh better to the point where you it you know justifies a remake I'm, I'm probably not the guy to say that what's much more interesting to me is that the character models have been altered significantly to the point where they they look pretty darn different for example one of the main characters um joel looks older much older with much more gray in his hair and beard which is how he appears in The Last of Us Part Two, which takes place significantly later, which means that the whole aged grizzle look makes sense, but it doesn't really make sense in the first story. Um, <clears throat> one of the other characters, main characters, Ellie, who's a little girl, her face looks completely different, um, almost plastic-like, I would say, in some of the shots. Um, the eyes have been enlarged. The, the skin doesn't look quite as natural. The hair doesn't look quite as natural. There's definitely been a an art direction shift. Um, 
I'm, I'm just not sure about this, man. I, I always feel a little awkward about, you know, the nature of the double dip. Uh, this one's already a triple dip as they keep re-releasing the same game with tweaks or, you know, some alterations over the generations. Uh, with a game like The Last of Us, I'm not convinced that is necessary considering both the PS3 and the PS4 versions are, you know, gorgeous and, and you know, they, they're not so aged that they need some kind of full-on remake. Um, they, they play still very, very well. Um, it also doesn't help that PS5 owners who are uh, subscribers to PS uh, Plus can actually um, play The Last of Us Remastered right now for $0, no additional cost. Uh, it's one of the games in the PS Plus collection. So I don't know if I'm convinced that a game like this needs to be released and needs to cost you know between $70 and $100. Finally, and I think this needs to be mentioned as well, Naughty Dog is one of the premier game developers that we have these days. And I find it difficult to believe that there is not something else these developers could be doing other than, you know, remaking a game basically for the third time, Chris. Is it? I'm probably the least qualified person to comment on this story because, number one, I haven't owned a Sony since a PlayStation 2 that I got at a pawn shop. Um, is this the same story? It is the, it is the same game, the same story. Um, it is, uh, supposed to be, you know, redone graphics and there's going to be some, what they're calling gameplay updates, whatever that might mean. I'm assuming they're going to somehow alter control schemes or the like. So also I've detailed on the show before that I'm just not a person who rereads, revisits, rewatches, replays things like um if I know the end of a story like it it's very anticlimactic for me there are, are a very select few things that I revisit regularly. Um so I <laughs> in addition to not being you know, very well versed in in Sony gaming, like it just seems incredibly quizzical to me, um, and and completely from the periphery here, it just looks like they're trying to milk like the last little bit out of this franchise. I thought I thought for certain we were talking about the show, um, you know, being at the center of debate. I remember that you know, the the Last of Us Part Two was a hot button issue. Uh, I think one of our previous nerd news stories. So I thought we were going to talk about the show because I think that had just wrapped filming or something. But like treading this water again is is just wild from my completely outside looking in perspective. And and the thing and this this is almost something uh, that that would be worth like a whole big talk just talking about various games and their their remakes and re-releases and whether they were worth it or not. Um, But... I'm huge into the notion of video game preservation. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of video games and I'm a big fan of the notion that, um, you know, graphical fidelity is not necessarily always needed to have the best gameplay experience. You know, I still play games that were released on the original Game Boy and, and have a, a lot of fun playing those games. Um, every generation has great games that are worthy of preserving and every generation has, you know, absolute trash released. That's neither here nor there. The problem is here... That this is not, you know, even like, let's say, The Last of Us Remastered uh, being, you know, being able to play it or even buy it, you know, on PlayStation 5. I think that's perfectly fine. But to to remake the same game and re-release it over the course of less than a decade seems just, it seems so counterintuitive, you know. Um, 
oftentimes you get remakes or re-releases that that make you know sense to a certain extent. I you know I'm I'm eyeballing for example like um, when we're talking about the Spyro Reignited trilogy, right? I mean the, the first three Spyro games hadn't been seen since the PlayStation One, you know, and now now we're in like PS5, Xbox Series X era. There's so many you know people have have never played the the original three Spyro games. So that is a a remake and re-release that absolutely makes sense across the board. But I mean it's not like this is a game that has been out of the public eye. Uh, it's this is not a game that people have not been able to play consistently consistently since it was originally released in 2013. There was never a time you really couldn't play this game. And I mean, you have the game in 2013, but 2014, it's available on, on PlayStation 4. And then you roll over to the PlayStation 5 and the PS4 version is available on there. I just don't quite understand what the what the need is for this game, except, except, and I think here we come full circle to what you were just saying, that we're getting this show starring Pedro Pascal and it is going to be coming soon. And I'm wondering if this game is not a way of the video game side of Sony to try to capitalize yes. on the increased um, awareness of the brand by putting another $70 game out there that they can, you know, they can charge full price for the sucker. Uh, it, it, it strikes me as incredibly cynical. Now, I don't know what the thinking was behind the scenes, whether this is a passion project of, of Naughty Dogs or whatnot, but on the surface, it strikes me as incredibly cynical, Chris. Yeah, and, and also, you know, from my perspective as a almost exclusively Microsoft gamer and being spoiled by the backwards compatibility that Microsoft has with their consoles, I mean, like, Right now, I, I just got, um, I downloaded um, Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2. I got that for like $4 on, on the Microsoft Store on my Xbox One, an original Xbox game that's nearly 20 years old, if, if not actually 20 years old. So, um, and having, also, let's just add in the nostalgia of um, the original Xbox loading screen, that weird gobbledygook that that load that that's whatever that loading screen but yeah so like this is incredibly weird for someone who's playing games that are two generations old on my xbox this is just wild to me well and you know even there let's say it i'm, I'm pretty certain i read a news story that knights of the old republic is getting a remake but here we're talking again about a game that has been, you know, for a while you weren't able to play it really on, on consoles. It has been out of, out of the public eye for a while, but it stayed beloved. You know, I can see where that would make sense. This, like, you know, it's it's one of those situations where it's never been gone long enough for anybody to actually miss it, Chris. Because it's never been gone. Right. Alrighty, folks. Well, we would like to hear your take. Will you be playing Shredder's Revenge when it releases? And hopefully on Game Pass, perhaps? Uh, and what are your thoughts about The Last of Us PlayStation 5 Remake? Hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord. And, of course, individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. We'd love to hear your thoughts on these news stories. After a quick break, we will come back with our big talk where the two teachers once again assigned each other some homework so stick around all right ladies and gentle nerds welcome back to our long running and by far longest runtimey segment the big talk. 
That's right, it's time for the Byword Big Talk. And once again, it's time for our book reports as we have assigned each other some homework. Um, so, Chris, uh, the assignment that I gave you this time around was for All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly. All-Star Superman uh, was supposed to be part of sort of a line-wide answer to Marvel's Ultimate line, where DC Comics would bring in um, all-star creators in order to sort of put their own spin on a popular um comic book character from the company. Now, the All-Star line uh, floundered rather quickly. All-Star Superman is sort of the crown jewel of the whole thing. We also got All-Star Batman and Robin, the the boy wonder by Frank Miller and Jim Lee, which (laughs) remains to be the greatest greatest punchline of Batman comic books of all time, perhaps. Uh, And and although quite very pretty to look at, is absolutely bananas and... um, does not rank among the best stuff. Uh, There was for a while a discussion of of there being an all-star Batgirl book as well as an all-star Wonder Woman book. Uh, Those things never came to pass. The line sort of collapsed. Um, And what we were left with was um, All-Star Superman by uh, Morrison and Quietly, 12-part series. Uh, So when we do these kinds of homework assignments, we have sort of um, standard questions, five standard questions that we like to ask each other. Uh, We might spin off of those a little bit as the discussion heats up, but we definitely want to get through the five base questions. So, Chris, the first of our basic questions is, of course, what did you like most about what you read? What did you like most about All-Star Superman? I I like that um, just... In addition to being a, a huge fan of of both Morrison and Quietly from the new X Men uh, title that they did back in '01, but um, like I, I I like that it was kind of a distillation of like what are like Superman's greatest hits, and it was just like it was a great introduction to the character. While some of it was kind of hard to approach as a relatively newcomer to Superman comics and DC comics as a whole. At the same time, it was kind of like a sampler platter uh, for lack of a better analogy of like, what is, what is the core of a Superman comic? What is the core of Superman as a character? And I think it delivered that to probably the greatest degree that I've seen in a comic book. Now I have to I have to kind of spin off of that a little bit because you said sort of a greatest hits distillation of the character. A lot of the stuff that um, Morrison alludes to uh, with this book is actually sort of pre-crisis of Infinite Earths Superman kind of stuff. You know, like the the ginormous door that goes to the Fortress of Solitude and all that stuff. That is very much sort of a, a pre-crisis rendering. So it's not what people would say is the quote-unquote modern interpretation of Superman. Did you find that distracting at all as you were reading it? Or... <clears throat> I, think, I think one of the most interesting things too, and then I was going to add this on there, is it felt very, um, that makes sense that, that you laid that out like that, because it felt very, I don't know if Twilight Zone or kind of like that futuristic view of like, it's the future, but like that golden age view of what the future would be like. So it feels very encapsulated in that interesting timeline. So it felt like it was written like 50s era, but at the same time with a glimpse towards the future. I think that's fair. 
So, so this is this is going to be um, the thing that's going to get you in trouble on social media. I have a funny feeling this is going to be where the audiogram comes from, um, Chris. <laughs> um, what did you think could have been better about All Star Superman? <laughs> there is precious little that I would improve about this, um, but I, 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 one of my go tos that I look for is diversity. Um, because I like to enjoy perspectives that are not my own so I can get a new point of view and a new perspective. And I felt that there was not a lot of diversity, um, at least um, as far as like race or ethnicity was to be said. I think there was some some great LGBTQ uh you know, infusions, uh, really interesting scenes with Jimmy Olsen, uh, in particular, as our friend Lex pointed out. Um, but as far as diversity on, uh, on the grounds of ethnicity and, um, and, and race, I, I felt that was probably lacking. That's probably my only real critique of it. But at the same time, in that 50s era-ish type thing, that's really not something that was really present, to be honest. And I think your criticism is absolutely valid in that respect. Um, even though uh, it's it's pretty clear what what kind of era uh, Morrison is trying to evoke uh, with this book, and kind of putting his own spin sort of on the golden age of Superman. Yeah. Um, I don't think it would have been a drawback uh, for the story to increase the diversity there a little bit. I think I think even when you introduce like alien characters from another world, even any kind of variance of skin tone or facial features or anything would have been have been a, a slight upgrade. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, what about the book, Chris? Uh, surprised you the most? What was sort of the biggest shocker for you about this thing? Um, just how completely weird sci-fi it went like i said it was something like twilight zone or really just bonkers out there type of sciency stuff and this is the first time that i've seen you know with my limited history reading superman comics this is the first time that i really got to see him be a scientist and that was really cool so that was my biggest most pleasant surprise and leans into one of the things that i enjoyed the most you know as a spider-man fan i like him tinkering and using his brain over brawn and you know that's something that's explicitly said um i also um we've talked about this uh quite a bit as well but like the um the Don Diego de la Vega of it all, of of Clark Kent versus Superman and like making that believable. Uh, the one where it slipped up was uh, like towards the end. I think it's like the 11th issue where Clark passes out and then they're like, oh, we knew you were Superman in disguise or whatever. Great job, Superman. That was a little bit okay, buddy. Wink, wink. But um, the rest of it was really fun. I'm particularly thinking of the issue where um, I think it's four or five, one of those, one of the first half of the series, probably my favorite issue of the series is um, when Clark goes to interview Lex Luthor on death row, like just like as, as they're going through the entire jail and like Clark is secretly taking out all of these threats that arise. That That's just really fun. I think it was <clears throat> probably art wise, the most creative and just a, just a chef's kiss on quite least part. And then um, it's just probably the most fun that I had reading was that particular issue. Yeah, everybody always talks about the uh, 
the Superman Lex Luthor dynamic, but very few people discuss sort of the Clark Kent Lex Luthor dynamic anymore. And I think there's a lot of fun to be had there too. Now, I will also point out that I absolutely love <laughs> that you enjoyed the scientist aspect of Superman. It's another golden age notion. Sort of everything is super about him. You know, he's yeah. he's got super intellect too. Um, modern writers have this tendency of trying to um, draw a really strong distinction between Batman and Superman by basically saying Superman is the brawn and Batman is the brain. And so we get stuff, you know, in constantly in comic books that, you know, don't really understand Superman very well. We're like, Clark, you idiot. You know, like, no, he's not an idiot. He's actually a really smart dude, you know. Um, but uh, it's, it's in, in the modern sense, it sometimes goes a little underappreciated, I think. You know who really also gets this um, really well is um, Kurt Busiek. Uh, Busiek did a, um, a fill-in run on Superman when uh, Jeff Johns was working on it with man was it with Andy Kubert or something I'd have to look but it's like when they you've already Richard... you've already sold me if that's the the team oh dude uh, I, I'll tell you the, the book was really good but it suffered horribly from delays and it was like Jeff Johns and he brought in like Richard Donner and they kind of like riffed off of, like the Chris Reeve Superman movies mm-hmm. a little bit and basically did a storyline that was technically almost like a sequel to to um to Superman 2 uh, but then, like, right in the middle of the storyline, they got, like, really delayed, like, months. And so they brought in Kurt Busiek to do, like, a fill-in run. And he, and and Busiek had all this cool little stuff, like, Superman has whole books printed in a micro dot. So he's sitting there reading a book, but he's reading, like, three different books at the same time and these little dots on the inside of the pages and stuff, like, you know, playing on the fact that he's a really smart dude and he can absorb all this information really fast. Um, yeah, Busick's little fill-in run ended up being easily as good as what, what what Johns was doing there. It was a very, very cool time to read Superman comic books. Here, here's another surprise. Um, so I was listening to um, Cerebrocast, um, and one of the things that they were discussing was the idea of villain color theory and how purple and green are you know, the go-to colors when you want to depict someone, whether it's a Disney villain or a super comic or or a comic book super villain, uh, purple and green are always the go-to colors. And of course, you know, I thought immediately of the Joker and his color scheme. But shortly after listening to that episode, um, I got to the end, the latter half of this run and Lex Luthor shows up in this trench coat outfit that is completely and only green and purple with some great knee-high boots. So that was a hilarious surprise. Happy Yeah, afternoon. and it's it's yeah, it's actually really cool too because the purple and green goes back really really far with Lex Luthor. Um particularly like <clears throat> pre pre-crisis again, I think he he was, you know, less businessman, more scientist in most of his um iterations. And he had this this purple and green battle suit that he, you know, would build and, and put on to try to take on Superman on a physical level. Um, and it's, of course, made, you know, several returns uh, post-crisis as well. Is, is, this the but, Buzz, uh, is this the Buzz Lightyear suit from the Injustice games? <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, Buzz Lightyear-ish, yeah. That suit has a, has a very long history. Um, and it is always purple and green. So I find, I find that very interesting. All right, Chris. 
Um, I hope you didn't have any major problems with this, but were there any continuity or larger universe issues that you encountered reading All-Star Superman? Not necessarily continuity or larger universe issues, but this was my introduction to some, like, really well-known Superman characters. So, like, this is the first... This is the first I I encountered Jimmy Olsen that I can remember because I don't remember him showing up a lot in Rebirth and I don't remember him in the first half of Birthright that I read. Um, So he was he was a tad annoying. I'm going to keep it honest. So maybe that was another could have been better. He was a tad annoying, but maybe that's par for the course for him. I'm not very familiar with the character. I just know that he's his best friend. Um, And then this was my first Bizarro comic, I think. So that took some some acclimation to get used to and like um, all the different supermen, like when it leaned into like some hard sci-fi, really hard sci-fi stuff that took like it took me longer to read those issues because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. So like it it really like high intellect like Morrison does sometimes um, in my previous experience of reading their work. So um, that was an adjustment that I had to make, not necessarily like a larger continuity issue, but it was a learning experience. I'll say that. <laughs> you know, the, I, I will I will say this when it comes to Jimmy Olsen. There have been a lot of different interpretations um, over the many, many years when it comes to Jimmy. But to me, my favorite is sort of, a, I would say probably the, the, the sort of pre-crisis version uh, of Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy got into all sorts of horse crap, like, you know, had his own comic book for a long time. And in fact, in fact, um, I think the New Gods actually made their premiere in a Jimmy Olsen comic book uh, when uh, when Jack Kirby was was uh, was writing it. So um, that that sort of aspect of, you know, Jimmy gets into a whole bunch of crap and is in way over his head. Yeah, there's a certain amount of annoyingness to that. Um, but I always enjoy just like, him just being like this supposedly supposedly like this down to earth character who just happens to have you know Superman as a best friend and keeps just getting into all sorts of crap. Um, uh, that's probably one of the things that I like best about um, those old comic books, uh, you know, pre crisis stuff. So yeah, I can see I can see how he can come across as annoying in All Star though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, the the professor the professor the professor Quintum stuff was confusing as well. It took me a second to iron that out. Like, I I don't think I'm smart enough for some of that. Oh, uh, you know, that that's, that's Morrison at their most Morrison-y. I will say that I was a little bit um, disappointed with the, the Quintum character, I guess is, is, I think Quintum is like an original creation for All-Star Superman, I think. Um, But there was post-Crisis, a really cool character that kind of, filled that same role, uh, Professor Emil Hamilton. And I never quite understood why Morrison decided not to use that character because Hamilton became fairly well-known, has made, you know, uh, appearances like in other media too, uh, you know, cartoons and the like. Um, I think there was a live action version too already. Like, so, so Emil Hamilton is sort of like that, that, you know, professor character that is like doing science support for Superman. And it was weird for me uh, that Morrison decided not to use that character. Um, But I mean, you know, Quintum works. It's just in a work that seems so full of references to other eras and parts of uh, Superman, 
uh, lore, I was surprised that that particular one was an original creation. So how do you think reading this text will change your reading choices going forward? How did All-Star Superman change your view of, of Superman or Superman comic books? I think in addition to wanting to read more Superman stuff, just so I can get a better frame of reference for some of the things that were included here, I want to read more Morrison stuff. Like while I, some of the stuff goes over my head that they write, I still want to give it a shot. I want to give it the old college try. I need to tap back into JLA first and foremost. I've got so much on my to read list. It's insane. Um, so that's, that's probably where I'm going to go before we, in this discussion, I want to totally include one of the things that I enjoyed the most is Lois Lane. And I totally get everything that you've proclaimed about her on the show before now, like especially now, like I think particularly like her character moments and the relationship between her and Superman was absolutely like out of the park, just top notch stuff. And so uh, I, I need more of that. Morrison is one of those people that absolutely just gets Superman in my book um, and everything that they do with with Superman in in the JLA comic was just so good. I don't know how far you got into uh, JLA, but uh, Morrison gets saddled with like an unfortunate change in powers. It's like the electric blue era of Superman. I think it I think I got to like that first couple of issues where he was Crayola Superman. Well, the funny thing is that that Morrison then goes <laughs> completely outdoes what was going on in the Superman comic books as far as using those new powers within like two or three issues. Like Morrison just completely knocks it out of the park and does these incredibly cool things with Superman. Like at one point, he's like wrestling an angel or something. It's just like, <laughs> God, I love Morrison, man. Morrison just gets Superman. I, I could have that discussion all day long. So final verdict, Chris. Is is All-Star Superman this this masterpiece that everybody keeps proclaiming when it comes to Superman? Yeah, it's it's quintessential stuff. And if if you're looking, um, you know, one of the things that we're we're looking for is like, what's the hook of this show? And one of the things we discussed is like we want to help people um get into reading comics um i think you know with your if you're like watching these shows or films and you're like i'm interested in these characters where can i start reading if you want to start reading superman take it from a noob's perspective this is a great entry point just to kind of get the gist of what superman is and what you should be looking for in a superman comic um, I will say, I'm going to throw this in there too, and you hinted at it already, but another big surprise is the fact that this is connected in any form or fashion to All-Star Batman and Robin, and like that this is from the same kind of publishing idea um, is absolutely wild to me and the most unexpected thing of all. I will totally agree with that. Uh, I don't think I'll ever get tired of saying how bad Asbar was. And yes, Asbar is the proper way of saying the t name of that book. <laughs> um, uh, he is the GD Superman, though. Uh. <laughs> he, he is absolutely the GD Superman. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's reverse roles here, Dave. So I assigned you um, Guardians of the Galaxy by... My favorite writer, Al Ewing, who I will follow to the ends of the earth, 
particularly with with this run and uh, coupled with Incredible Hulk, which was running around the same time, and then what he is doing in uh, what he did in Sword and is now doing in X Men Red. I I just fully enjoy Al Ewing's work. So, um, Guardians of the Galaxy ran from twenty. Let's see. 2020 to 2021 um it was canceled after the 18th issue which was uh the last part of the the crossover um i think they did have a 19th issue but it was canceled in may of 2021 um so i think that'll probably add some context to our conversation uh before we started hitting record um but um really really fun and a really fun book and i'm excited to hear what you thought about it so first things first what did you like most about what you read no the star lord issue i i told you i told you i told you it's 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 flawless sci-fi writing that that one issue i'm going to be completely honest with you chris um i i struggled a little bit getting into it um and that has a lot to do with the fact that the history of the guardians um, the recent history of the Guardians of the Galaxy in Marvel is is kind of all over the place, I mm-hmm. guess. I looked at a comprehensive reading list if I wanted to get into modern Guardians of the Galaxy, and it, it's 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 daunting. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so um, it, it it took me a hot second to orient myself in the series. So I would like read an issue, and then I'd walk away for a day or two, read something else, and then I'd read a couple issues, and I'd walk away for a day or two, and I'm like kind of struggling to connect but man when when that star lord issue hit i was like heck yeah son this this is good science fiction writing you know this idea that everybody thinks he's dead but he's in like another universe or something and he's completely cut off and and he's you know living agelessly for like 146 years or something and slowly has to let go of his old life and then boom when he least least expects it he has to return to his old life and almost no time has gone by there like some like four months or something like that that is excellent science fiction writing and i don't have in front of me who did the art for that issue but holy mother of god the panel layouts were absolutely incredible in that issue it's just stunning work uh it's it reminded me a little bit of what i liked best about uh jage williams iii's um batwoman uh comic book these really really like innovative panel layouts interesting shapes how to arrange the art on the page that is uh, you know, that's like, a juan cabal just found it Oh, it's 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 incredible, man. This is one of the things I love so very much about modern comic book art is that we have these great innovators that are like not even restricting themselves to, you know, traditional paneling, but doing these incredible cool uh, layouts that still make sense to the brain. Like you still can follow along perfectly with what's happening on the page, but it kind of tosses that whole like grid based panel system out the window and does these really cool things with it. Like I could sing the praises of this one singular issue (laughs) for probably the next 30 minutes easily Uh, it was by far my favorite issue of the entire run and it absolutely worked yeah that that um that issue gained my nerd commendation it uh alone and it was the solely the reason that i assigned this to you as homework um i think in the last um calendar year it's my favorite single issue that i read yeah i I i think it's fair that it's i it's man it's up there as far as like best single issue it's really, really strong. It's 
yeah, it's just it's and it's a what I really like about it too is that it's a wonderful encapsulation of a story within a single issue that has implications for the larger story arc, but can be almost read by itself and feels like a complete story. I think that has become almost a lost art in comic books. Everything is so decompressed, you know, writing for the trade, being able to do a beautiful done in one issue like this that is so dense and has so much to say and is so filled with good storytelling. It's so rare. It's a great, great single issue. Okay, so let's get into the other side of things. What do you think could have been better or did you not enjoy as much? Um, You know, the it's really hard for me to talk about, you know, some of these things because I don't have a good sense for for these characters in the context of of who they are in the Marvel universe. You know that you have some standbys, you know, like um, like Rocket that make you know sense uh, because you're kind of familiar with them from from the MCU and all that. Um, you know, Groot makes a certain degree of sense, um, although he talks completely normal for a while there. Um, which was interesting, and I feel like I missed a story there too. Um, I think the biggest thing that I didn't like about it is um, is probably Moondragon. Um, I think the Moondragon characters, uh, these two people from parallel universes, one you know sort of perfect superheroic, the other one uh, you know sort of a bad past. Although it's never really spelled out very clearly what the problem was with the. Um, 616 moon dragon but then the notion of these two characters fusing i found that to be incredibly interesting but then very little happened with it like there was some some rudimentary like marriage tension there as moon dragon's wife was all like are you even still the same person which i think is a really good question that was not really explored to any satisfying degree i think um I thought that was sort of a missed opportunity. I really wanted more Moon Dragon and how do you, you know, how do you unite these two halves to become a singular person and what are the hiccups of that? And I, I think there was like a whole there was like a whole sci-fi story right there um that that was never really delved into all that much. I thought that was something that I I wish there would have been more of Moon Dragon story in this. Yeah, I think that's fair too. Um, one of, and, and this is interesting too because this is this was the first Guardians book that I read, and so I kind of just kind of buckled up and ran with it. I went back and started reading some of the older stuff, particularly the um, the Annihilation Conquest stuff, and it kind of filled in some spaces. But some of that stuff, I'm still kind of, and even then. Uh, Groot goes from the I am Groot to talking full length verses of everything. So it doesn't really seem to have something. It's something that we're both missing, I guess. The Moondragon stuff is fascinating because I, I don't know a whole lot about that character. I know she served as one of like the staples of the Avengers in the, I want to say the 80s and 90s. So there's probably just a lot of character history that I don't know about. Um, I've always found her to be a fascinating character because if I remember correctly, she's the daughter of Drax. Um, which is interesting, but like the whole, I think that's another problem that we face with Marvel specifically is the MCUification of, of the comic book publishing line. And so a lot of stuff just kind of gets thrown in a blender trying to bring some kind of commonality there. Yeah. You know, that, that's actually something else I was going to throw out there. Uh, when Drax first appears, 
um, I think Ewing does a really good job, like making it clear what the relationship is. Hey, this is, you know, um, this is Drax's daughter. But man, it threw me like for a good solid half issue that that was Drax. Because, you know, you know, Drax has a very um, specific kind of look in the MCU. And then here he's got like this weird little like skin tight hood and cape. And I was like, who, who, who is this? (laughs) Um, And, and I, then, you know, as soon as I got used to that look, suddenly boom, he's running around shirtless. And I'm like, dude, what, what is this like the same Drax? Or do we have two Draxes here on top of two moon dragons? Like I got confused for a hot second there. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think it's a huge misstep in my opinion, because I always think of the MCU as like an alt universe. So you're going to have some distinct differences. Like why not embrace that? I totally agree with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with having these distinct differences. You know, I'm going to tell you something else uh, that I would like to probably throw out there um, as far as, you know, what could have been better. Um, as much as I love that Star-Lord issue and, and everything that happened spinning out of that issue, one of the things I could never quite wrap my head around is who this Star-Lord is in relation to the MCU Star-Lord. Like what what... His story is obviously very different. I mean, this is not the son of, you know, Ego, the living planet and all that stuff. But then, you know, with all this stuff like, you know, you know, having visions of this, this old dude, but these are false memories and I shall make you a star lord and all that stuff. I was like, I could not quite, I could not quite get my hooks in that. And then at one point he's like talking about, I think a sister, he like name drops her or something. And I just, who, who this version of star lord is became very, very difficult for me to get a hook into. And I understand, you know, this version of, of Guardians has a, you know, a long history now, and they've been around a long time, and there's all sorts of, you know, story there. But, um, you know, I, I'm going to have to go back to Superman for a second in order to kind of explain my trepidation with Star-Lord here. Um, when... Uh, uh, Crisis of Infinite Earths came out back in the 80s. They killed Supergirl. And then they relaunched uh, after Crisis, and the edict came down that there were no other Kryptonian survivors. Um, and so writers had to kind of ride around that fact. Um, and so all these characters that were traditionally Kryptonian characters, they had to like you know, uh, Zod is from a pocket universe and all this stuff. And the way they brought Supergirl back is to make her like this, this shapeshifter who, you know, becomes like, um, inspired by Superman and kind of gets the traditional Supergirl look, but it's not really a Kryptonian. And then, you know, Peter David gets a hold of the character and transforms her. And the run is absolutely incredible. It's a great, great run. And I highly recommend it. But, by the time he's done with the character, suddenly she's like a, a a fallen angel kind of thing. And it's like all this this mythology around her. And so if you try to point and say Supergirl is, and this is the pitch, you know, suddenly you're like, you need a, a dissertation to explain Supergirl. And so one of the things that happened then um, is, and I believe this was under Dan DiDio's regime, um, they kind of made the decision to bring the original Supergirl back. And the reasoning given was very simple. We need to give readers a quick, easy pitch of who this character is so they can get into the story through that character and make sense of the story, right? You can't have so much backstory in a character that a new reader coming to the book doesn't get it, you know? 
And so what they did is they brought, you know, Kryptonian Kara Zor-El back. She's the other survivor from Krypton and she's Superman's cousin. Boom. And it's a very easy pitch. Superman's cousin. Boom. There's the character. Let's go tell some stories. Um, and I think that's what my, that was my problem with Star-Lord here. There, there seems to have been this incredibly convoluted long history of, I, I feel like at one point he had one origin, then somebody came in and retconned it and said it was a false memory. And here's Al Ewing trying to play around with that. And I'm sitting over here lost. Like, what, <laughs> is, what, what is the boiled down pitch? Who is this dude? Um, and I never got that answer, I think. Um, so although I liked Star-Lord and how he was depicted, um, I never kind of got a sense for who in the world this dude is. And and I think that was sort of a missed opportunity too. Yeah, for sure. I, I know that they have um, an old man Quill story, like, like a solo. I don't know how that plays in here, if at all. I'm really kind of agnostic about Marvel's obsession with old, old white man hero. Um, so... I, I I can't I can't tell you anything about that, but I do know that I would have I would have loved to have a, a Star Lord solo. That's why I say all that because I would have loved to have a Star Lord solo coming out of this and kind of give some of that depth. Yeah, uh, and you know, um, I think I think Bendis at one point had his hands in this early on. Yeah. Um, when it, like I bet you he had some retconning going on with the character. I just feel he like there's a, there's to do that. <laughs> I'm just glad he's not writing Superman right now. That's, that's, all, that, that's all I wanted. You know, I just I just want to bend this off of my Superman. That's all I, I, I wanted. Of you, I think of you uh, regularly when I'm, I'm finishing up Green Lanterns, which I know that's not technically been a nerd accommodation. It snuck in. I, I put it in as as my uh, Nerdies Award winner, but like that's my biggest nerd accommodation of the last little bit because I love it so much. I'm very upset where how they took it away from being uh, a Simon and Jess book because I love them. And then the last 10 issues or so is like, just kidding, it's everybody. And they took that away, that buddy cop dynamic that I love so much. But it is yeah. funny, the, the second page tease is Bendis is coming. <laughs> so I thought of you every time. I wonder if he, you know what, I'm not going to say it because this is still a family show. Um, <laughs> anyways, let us continue our discussion of Guardians. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what surprised you the most about this, Rondé? You know, surprise. Um, I guess th there were a lot of like smaller surprises, you know, like I was surprised that Groot was just like talking full sentences mm -hmm. at the beginning. And then I was equally surprised that, you know, suddenly um, he wasn't at the end there. And yeah. I felt like I missed something. And you know, like there were a whole bunch of little things that surprised me. Um, but you know what surprised me the most is freaking Nova. Like, I oh, know yeah. that this character must have a long history in, in, in Marvel. But... Like, if you look at the at the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, right, the Nova Corps is like sort of this throwaway yeah. thing that doesn't do anything, right? And here's freaking Nova, like, you know, PTST Green Lantern or something. Yeah. Like, it was the, it was the app, like, I have no idea who this dude is. Like, I know almost nothing about Nova. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting over here going, wasn't there like a a kid Nova that was running around with, with Miles and Kamala at one point and Champions or something? Yeah, that's okay. Seemed, that's okay. Uh, this is, and this is, I, I'm not very steeped in this, but I know this much. The Nova that you read is Richard Ryder, AKA Dick Ryder. Um, 
And the one... <laughs> I restrain myself, Chris. I restrain myself. You that's, have no restraint, he... sir. No, no, I don't. Um, but, the, I mean, that's his name. Um, <laughs> I, I call him by, call me by your name. Um, uh, so, uh, but the one you're thinking of, the younger one, is Sam Alexander. That's the one that's in Champions and stuff. Okay, I'd, I almost thought if there was somebody like de-aged or something. like no, Totally different character. Totally different character, yeah. But I was, I guess I was most surprised by the importance of Nova to the overall storytelling, his close relationship with with both Gamora and with with uh, with Peter Quill. I, I guess I was just surprised by that whole setup because Nova is is basically a non entity as far as the MCU is concerned. Like when you think Guardians of the Galaxy, as is presented to the movie going audience, like Nova isn't even really a thing. So I guess I was surprised by how important he was, and and I'm kind of, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm interested in reading more or not about him. Um, on the one hand, he feels like, you know, Marvel's version of like a Green Lantern character. Um, on the other hand, it was it was interesting to see somebody so deeply affected by past mistakes and how he was trying to deal with that. And it was nice to see a positive depiction of therapy once. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's you know, not, there, that's, there were not, some... that's not heroes in crisis. <laughs> you know what? Screw that book. OK, screw that book. <laughs> that, showed um, up, that showed up in my teases, too, when I was reading Lanterns. <laughs> Yeah, don't, 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 just don't read it, man. It's going to hurt. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess I was surprised by the Nova of it all. I will say that um, based on how much I enjoyed this series, uh, my friend Will um, recommended, you could find him at Quinoa Noir on Twitter. Shouts to you, buddy. Uh, he, I, I told him how much I love this series and he gave me like some recommended reading lists that kind of helped me with Nova. Um, so I read Annihilation Conquest and then I, I, I put it on pause cause I honestly, I got the yearly subscription to DC universe infinite and Marvel unlimited. So now it's like an embarrassment of riches that I have and I just can't keep up. So I have lots of things to read. My summer vacation is booked and busy, but the Abnet and landing stuff that comes from um, Annihilation Conquest into their run on Guardians gives you a lot of depth that I was missing when I read this series for the first time. So if you are interested, particularly Nova, Richard Ryder, I'll, I'll stay with Richard, Richard Ryder, also some great Gamora moments where she gets taken over by um, the Phalanx, really cool stuff, um, great Gamora uh, costume, uh, is very gazy, but... What are you gonna do? It's mid aughts Marvel. Um, but Everything's yeah. gazy. Yeah, <clears throat> but um, so yeah. I, also, it's interesting that you say that because probably my biggest surprise, one of my biggest surprises in the MCU is the fact that we don't have Nova. Like he's one of the most fan favorite characters, and for someone like James Gunn to not touch on that character at all outside of the Nova Corps, but that's ambiguous. For him, for us not to have Nova in those Guardians movies is really surprising. Yeah, yeah, I would say so too. It seems like there's a. It there's seems like a very James. That seems like a very James Gunn character, to me. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. Interesting. All right, so I'm uh, I'm treading this one um, very lightly, um, but I'm interested to hear your take on it because I had some. Uh, here and we've kind of touched on it a little bit already but what continuity or larger universe issues did you encounter 
I had no flipping idea what was happening <laughs> half the time. And it was not because the writing was so complex. The writing was great, and I loved all the big sci-fi ideas happening. But I had no idea what was going on. Like, in the beginning, like, Gamora wants to settle down, and I guess Star-Lord and Rocket aren't ready to. I got that. Why they were ready to settle down, I don't know. I guess something from the previous volume. And then it just all went off the rails. I didn't know who half the characters were. I'm still not quite sure who the two moon dragons were. Uh, Drax looked completely different than I anticipated. Like I was, I was lost for a good four or five issues. I would say before I got my bearings, it was not. Let me just put it this way: I really ended up liking it overall, but it was not the starting place for Guardians of the Galaxy. I right. think yeah. it was. It was not entry point friendly. Right. Um. I, as a huge Ewing fan, uh, there's. A lot of us who are Ewing fans that thinks he gets the short end of the stick when it comes to crossovers. Um, did you find the last annihilation and the King and Black stuff completely destabilizing at all? You know, I've, I actually think that Al Ewing did a really, really good job weaving in and out of that. Um, kind of explaining a little bit on the periphery of what was going on. I didn't think it uh, detracted. I think Ewing, based on this book, um, it's it's about as good as what Reed did on on that Miss Marvel book I talked about last week. I always felt like, I, uh, I feel like overall... You know, certain writers, when they do tie-ins to crossovers, the tie-ins seem irrelevant or they feel like they can't stand on their own and you have to go and read the crossover right now. And I didn't feel like I needed to re- read King and Black at all to get what was happening. Like, the, the the overall sort of explanation was there and then, like, one of the characters was like, oh, we don't have to go to Earth after all. The news out of Earth is good. They, they, they wrapped it up. And I'm like, okay, good, great, let's move on. Like, it was... It was you know, there was not like a, a box on the bottom with like, go read it right now, you know, and I, and I appreciated that. It was it was pretty well integrated, um, much better than, than I have seen with other crossovers. So I was pleased with that part, at least. Um, I think I think Last Annihilation was handled really well, too, because I, I'm pretty sure that was his baby. So like um, he was also writing Sword concurrently at the time. So that probably made a lot more sense, too. Um but I was just interested because uh, because of that aspect. Um, we kind of discussed this as well um, previously, but uh, we had our suspicions, and then I did a quick Google search, and it was confirmed that the book was canceled. Do you think that played into uh, the storytelling? Well, look, uh, I mentioned this to you before we started recording. I feel like the first 12 issues, issues of this feel like a, a great sort of 12 issue magnum opus like it's really telling a story it's really you know it's got narrative drive there's subplots it's really going somewhere and then i feel like the last six issues were supposed to be like another 12 issues but got compressed down the six to wrap it up for the cancellation or something it does not nearly have the narrative heft and you also feel like there are things that are unresolved for example there's a scene where uh Nova and Star-Lord are discussing like that Star-Lord has a son in this other universe or whatnot, right? And you always feel like that's going to come into play, like his son is going to come looking for him or something, you know? And and nothing comes of it. And it's just like, 
we just have to wrap it up real quick, you know? Um, all these little subplots that were dangling around didn't really go anywhere. There was no real clear resolution of what in the world was going on with this, I don't know, love triangle, polyamorous relationship thing that they had going on with, with Gamora and, and Nova and Star-Lord. Like, you know, Gamora seems to want to take Star-Lord back, but he says he needs time. And then Gamora seems to be sending signals that really she wants to be with Nova. And then the whole thing was like, it was like it was going somewhere, but then it didn't. Um, so I feel I feel like there are a lot of um, missed opportunities, I don't want to say, but I want to say dangling plot threads that had to be wrapped up maybe too quickly, too neatly. So the first 12 issues I liked significantly better than the last six. I feel like that's where things went a little off the rails. Um, finally, how do you think reading this text will change your reading choices going forward? I think I just need to punt back and read some more Guardians leading up to this book. I think I will have a greater appreciation for what Al Ewing was trying to do here once I contextualize some of these characters and what actually, you know, led up to this. I know they 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 mentioned, you know, um, stuff that happened during Annihilation and all the reading orders that I've seen say basically that Annihilation is sort of the birthplace of the modern Guardians franchise. But then, you know, I, I whipped up Annihilation and I read the first issue and and there's Peter Quill and he's not he doesn't look like this Peter Quill. He has a different hair color. He has like an eye implant, kind of mechanical eye implant thing. And I mean, he's hanging out with Nova, but he's not really so much a superhero as he seems like a bookkeeper or something. Like I'm confused by the whole situation. And I, I think the only way that I'm going to get a good grip of what Guardians is or has become in in the Marvel comics is by just sitting down and really, you know, going back and reading some of the earlier stuff to see how this all coalesced into what is going on in Al Ewing's book. Yeah, I think, as I said, uh, there's Annihilation and there's Annihilation Conquest, which are completely different. Annihilation is the Annihilation Horde, and then Annihilation Conquest is when the Phalanx takes over this techno-organic uh, virus type situation. Um, and then that leads into the abnet landing of it all. But um, before we wrap on this, <clears throat> I know you love this. I the, Rocket was my favorite thing uh, about the series, um, particularly that uh, murder mystery episode or, or uh, issue where he just gets to be like Columbo in raccoon form. Second favorite issue of the whole run is yes. that whole like who who done it. Um, again, again, even there, why do they refer to him as Ranger Rocket and they act like he's law enforcement? I feel like there's something missing there <laughs> yeah. because that's not how I know this character, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm missing something there. The Doctor Doom stuff is great, too. The body swap. I love how Ewing writes Doom. I do, too, although I feel even there, like the idea of Doctor Doom as part of the Guardians of the Galaxy felt like a... We need to put this on the cover to drum up sales. You know what I'm saying? Like it felt like maybe the book was struggling a little bit. So now we're going to put Doom on the team and everybody's going to be like, WTF, what is going on? We need to buy this book. And I guess it didn't work. Uh, Alas. All righty, folks. Did you read along with our summer book reports? What do you think of All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly? What are your thoughts on Al Ewing's 18-issue Guardians of the Galaxy? Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us at NerdByWord and individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris.
Let's go ahead and head into our final break. And when we come back, it is time for Nerd Commendations. Stick around. And we're back. And one of the things that we firmly believe here at the Nerd Byword is that we want to be there for you, the new comic book readers, but also for those of you who are seasoned comic book readers constantly looking for something new. And that is why we have this segment where we recommend new nerdy media to you. And it is called... Now, Chris, I'm very interested in hearing about your nerd commendation this week because I have heard uh, things about this series, but I have not yet read it. So convince me. All right. I love to give credit where credit is due. So shouts to our hashtag Drunk Pete family. We read one of the issues of this last night. Um, and it just reminded me how much I really, really enjoyed the premise of this book. And my nerd commendation this week is Spider-Man Life Story, written by Chip Zdarsky, with art by none other than the GOAT himself, Mark Bagley. Uh, Six-issue miniseries that, long story short, what if Spider-Man Peter Parker aged in real time across his publication history? Each issue uh, represents a different decade in Spider-Man history and is really an encapsulation of the most popular storylines from that decade and that era. But when you transition to the next decade, he is aged 10 years as well. And um, in an age where we have, you know, the sliding time scale and Peter Pan Parker is perpetually 25, this was a really, really interesting divergence from that storyline. So if you're like Dave, and you are constantly rolling your eyes at the <clears throat> consistent return to normalcy and the same old hits uh, for the Amazing Spider-Man title. He's broke again. He's single again. He can't quite get it right with MJ. Um, this is a really interesting take on all that stuff and some interesting commentary on those periods. Yes, there's Clone Saga stuff. That's particularly the issue that we read last night, the 90s issue. But then you get to like the 2010s um, and you see like old man Peter and, you know, handing off the moniker to Miles. It's just really, really cool because it's like, okay, we get it. He's 25. And for the first time, you know, we really get to see some actual stakes and some actual lasting consequences for Peter. And he doesn't always make the right decision. And um, there's, it's just really, really fun story. I love Chip writing Spider-Man. I miss him on Spectacular Spider-Man. I miss Spectacular Spider-Man as a whole. Um, really just reminds me that the, his Daredevil is at the top of my to-read list. Um and then Mark Bagley. I mean, what more can we say? I think it's probably w one of my, if not my favorite Spider-Man artist. So it's it's like a dynamic duo, one of my favorite tag teams like that I never thought would happen. So Spider-Man Life Story is my nerd commendation this week. You know, it's absolutely incredible how often it seems like Bagley just keeps coming back to Spider-Man, even after his mammoth run on Ultimate, even before then, during like the Clone Saga era. And now, like, just like in the Beyond era, he popped up again, too. Like the man is just like one of, I think, one of the defining Spider-Man artists. Um, 
and I'll I'll read anything that were Mark Bagley's drawing Spider Man. Um, and I really like the the conceit here of like aging in real time. So I think uh, I th- I think I'll need to read this man. Yeah, it's really, really interesting, particularly with things like, you know, Flash going to the Vietnam War, and then that gets retconned in the aughts to being Afghanistan instead. So seeing that, like, staying power of consequences is really, really fascinating. Yeah, I'm here for this, man. I, I think, is this on Marvel Unlimited, Chris? It is, all six issues. Are, there's also an annual that I heard was great about J. Jonah Jameson, but I have not read it yet. I'm gonna fire it up. I need something new to read. Okay, uh, Dave, you're rec- uh, recommending a Jeff Johns book. Yeah, it's a really complex relationship I have with his his work. Wish that I could quit um, you. Just yeah, like Bagley it's, it's is one, with Spider-Man. <laughs> it seems like. So I'm, uh, my nerd commendation is going to need a little bit of explanation. Um, most comic book fans, particularly readers at DC... Uh, are at least rudimentarily familiar with some of the stuff I'm about to say, but for the uninitiated. Um, back in the 80s, one of the great seminal uh, writers of comic books and a very, very interesting personality as well, uh, Alan Moore, uh, pitched a, a book to DC Comics using uh, the uh, uh, a series of characters that uh, DC had recently uh, acquired to tell a really sort of mature story uh, and kind of deconstruct and and satirize the concept of superheroes. Um, DC loved the idea, but not the use of those characters because it would have made it basically impossible to use those characters in the future. Told Alan Moore to go for it, um, but with original characters. Uh, he was joined by artist Dave Gibbons and uh, colorist John Higgins. And what did we get? What is still listed frequently as one of the greatest graphic novels of all time, Watchmen. Watchmen, uh, for some comic book readers, is sort of this this holy grail of, of awesomeness. <laughs> um, it's it's pretty cynical. Um, it's It's very mature. And it does, in fact, both deconstruct and satirize the concept of superheroes. Um, it's sort of an alternate history um, story. You have superheroes that sort of emerged uh, like in the 60s. Their presence sort of altered uh, history. Uh, the United States ends up like, you know, w- winning Vietnam. Watergate is never exposed. It's this whole like, you know, alternate history thing. And the story takes place, I believe, in 85. And, you know, the United States is edging towards war with, you know, the Soviet Union. And there's sort of this this story of these superheroes that sort of come out of retirement. And one of them is not so much a hero, but really a villain. He has this plan to avert uh, war by creating a big lie that would, you know, unite um, the world uh, in a singular cause. And that's sort of the story. Um, It's... You know, a, a good story and all that, but I, I'm I fall into the camp of as good as it is. It might have gotten a little too influential because we get you know sort of out of that late mid to late '80s movement, we get sort of that increasing darkness and and cynicalness about superhero comic books that became so fashionable for a while. Of course, Watchmen was famously um, turned into a movie by friend of the show Zack Snyder um, back in 2009. 
So why am I talking about Watchmen? It's definitely not my nerd commendation. What is my nerd commendation this week is uh, sort of a sequel to Watchmen, uh, written by um, Jeff Johns with art by Gary Frank. Doomsday Clock, a 12-issue maxi-series, was announced as a crossover between the Watchmen universe and the DC universe. Uh, The book hit massive delays, so any impact that it was originally planned to have on the larger DC universe kind of got pushed under the rug. And when it finally did wrap up, it sort of wrapped up uh, less with a bang and more of a whimper, I guess. Um, But here's the thing. (laughs) Um, Going into this as only sort of a semi-fan of Watchmen, um, I I think it's a good book, but I don't think it's like this, this holy grail that can never be touched or something. I ended up kind of shocked by how good this was um especially considering that the 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 discourse around doomsday clock was always extremely uh divided i guess is the best way to put it so so what's the what's the base story here um the the big secret the manipulation of the the main villain from the first one has been revealed to the world in the watchman universe and the nukes drop and everything's about to be destroyed so this villain enlists a couple of other characters, jumps into a time ship, looking for the most powerful being of the Watchmen universe, Dr. Manhattan, who got kind of sick and tired of humanity and the universe in general and ended Watchmen by basically saying he's going to go out there and just like leave it all behind and maybe look for new universes. And it turns out that the universe that Dr. Manhattan actually went to is the DC universe. And you know, I don't want to give away too much of the story except for this. Uh, Dr. Manhattan basically exists in all times at the same time. So he experiences time non-linearly. Uh, Chris, you totally know all about that considering you're now a Deep Space Nine fan. I was just going to say that. Yes, he's, yes. He's but, one of the prophets. <laughs> yes, but... Um, Apparently, he can't look past a singular moment in history, and that is the moment when Superman confronts him. So basically, the entire 12-issue series is slowly building up towards this confrontation between Superman and Dr. Manhattan. And Dr. Manhattan's theory is that either Superman destroys Dr. Manhattan or Dr. Manhattan destroys everything and existence ends and that's why he can't see anything past us but one way or another a definite ending is coming and it's going to come when superman and dr manhattan meet and dude i i was i was floundering for a little while of whether i was going to like this but the more it built towards that confrontation the more i realized that this is not really just a sequel to Watchmen or a crossover with Watchmen. This series is actually a love letter to Superman. And as a massive Superman fan, the more this coalesces into view, the more I started loving this series. You know, Jeff Johns does fascinating things here, uh, like how the entire DC universe always becomes reconfigured around Superman. You know, every time there's a reboot or a change in continuity, it always configures in some way around Superman and his arrival uh, in in the DC universe and his upbringing and all that. Um, 
So I, I thought that was really fascinating. And I can't really talk about too much of the intricacies of the story without giving away a whole bunch of what happens. But if you're a Superman fan and you're even rudimentarily familiar with sort of the broad strokes and the basic characters of Watchmen, I think this 12-issue series is totally worth a read. I ended up walking away from this series way more satisfied and fulfilled than I thought I would by the time I finished the 12th issue. So although it's a pretty divisive book by, you know, a pretty divisive writer um, and there being a sequel to Watchmen even in... Um, in in theory, is a pretty divisive thing. I would say um, see it as a, a Superman story, and I think you will come away from the series very satisfied. It, it's really interesting because as, as I'm very much a latecomer to reading comics as a whole, I'm playing a lot of catch-up on some of these like iconic stories. So, for example, uh, when I saw the teaser for Sandman last week... Um, for the Netflix series, I was like, well, okay, I, I've put it off for such a long time. So now that's what, you know, I, I, another thing that I'm reading on top of the umpteen other things. So I'm reading Sandman for the first time. Um, Watchmen is another one of those that, you know, context clues, just pop culture references, Dr. Manhattan meme exclusively. Um, I, 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 I kind of get the gist of it just from a peripheral standpoint. I've really I, I tried the first two episodes of the Regina King show on HBO Max simply because I'm a fan of her work and I wanted to support that. But I felt like And that show and that show is also basically a sequel to Watchmen. So again, it's kind of it's kind of asking you to have read right. the comic so book. So I, I think I might just have to take the dive and read Watchmen because I just I, I want to have the, the the most full possible experience. Um so this this might be something that I have to dive into both both this and Doomsday Clock and and try to give the series another shot. Yeah, I will I will say that that Watchmen itself is is totally worth a read, even though I have sort of mixed feelings about it. I think it's as a, as a as a work of fiction, it is very interesting. The art is very strong. Uh, it has interesting things to say about you know, uh, superheroes and the superhero genre. But at the same time, I also don't think it's like, it should be this, this thing that continuously seeps into, you know, mainstream superhero comic books. This is a deconstruction and not every story needs to be deconstructing superheroes, but it's totally worth a read. And I really, really think you should read it, Chris. But I found, I found the Superman of it all in Doomsday Clock super satisfying. Yeah. I think for me, what, what gives me pause every time I think about it is I'm the world for me is cynical enough as it is. And sometimes when I go to reading comics or playing video games or watching a show or a film, I look for escapism. And so I look for more optimistic things. And I think I can easily become uh, submerged in the cynicism if I'm not careful. So that's probably why I've waited so long. I think that's fair. Alrighty, folks, there you have it, our summer reading assignment. We cannot wait to hear your thoughts about all the things we discussed today. Please find us on social media. Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram, uh, at NerdByWord, uh, or individually at that NerdDave. 
or at that note, Chris. And if you want to spend a little extra quality time with us discussing all the great nerdy content, Chris was kind enough to set up a brand new nerd byword Discord channel. Chris, tell us a little bit about that, man. Yeah, so really, it's a great place to just come hang out and chat about all things nerdy. You can share your own nerd commendations if you want to talk Marvel or DC Comics or indie comics. Um, I even I even put a horror channel in there so um we could talk about the mcu we could talk spoilers we could talk star wars star trek anything and everything a lot of people have suggested that we kind of narrow our vision on the show but dave and i both feel very very strongly that we want to be an open and welcome community to all aspects of the nerdverse and kind of pigeonholing ourselves into one particular criteria seems incredibly limiting so Stop by. We can share out the. We've shared out the link on our Twitter and Instagram pages. Um, you can always DM us if you need a direct link, uh, direct link as well. But just come, bring good vibes, and um, hang out with us. Um, as always, we thank you so much for your support. Uh, be sure to give us a uh, like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Amazon or nerdbyword.com, which Dave is so graciously working to retool, get ready for that revamped and revitalized website very, very soon. Um, And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.